Um, if you're anything like me, there, there's just a flood of both truth and stories and emotion that kind of flood into our minds when we talk about a topic like the goodness of God and um, really just corporately as we sing together. That's an expression of his goodness. His goodness is all around us. His goodness is expressed in the people that uh, are to the left and to the right of us. And I'm convinced that his goodness um, is going to continue to be the the reality that we walk in this morning. And um, I'm just confident that he has a, a lot of good. I've been praying for a lot of different people this morning. And I want to start uh, just with a, with a story. And the truth is, um, all of my sons love video games. So any video gamers out there? All right. I am not. All right. But um, to spend time with my boys, like over time, I have selectively tried to enter into their world and, and play video games, but the truth is, like, I'm not very good at them. Like, if it has more than two buttons, I'm probably not going to be very good at it. So um, what I did was introduce them to um, the original 8-bit Nintendo, so that's kind of my generation, and so um, I remember a, a season where Landon probably was 13, 14 years old, and I introduced him to The Legend of Zelda, and he was absolutely amazed that I could remember um, after 20-plus years how to kind of navigate all the maze and all of that. And um, he made a pretty astute observation, I think, for a 14-year-old. He said, um, he said, you know, because games weren't very powerful back then, like, um, they just made them really difficult, and that's true. Like, you almost had to become an expert at every game that you play because the, the games themselves didn't have enough memory to actually... Um, display very much of a story, and um, that was making me th also think of um, how thankful I am in video games that they have cheat codes. You guys know what I'm saying? I still remember there was a, a game in the 1980s, it was called Contra, and I wasn't very good at it, but um, that, that's the first time I learned about cheat codes, and I still remember it to this day. It's up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B-A, B-A, start. Um, if you know, you know. If you don't, you don't. Um, <laughs> But the thing about Contra was I wasn't very good at the game, but um, if you put in this cheat code, basically you got 30 guys and you could be really lame at the game uh, and you could still win. And uh, I know that's kind of a strange analogy, but that's kind of what I was thinking about when I was reading Psalm 23 and this reality that we've been singing about this morning that the goodness of God runs after us and pursues us and chases us down until we're found, that the goodness of God is kind of the defining reality that is this unstoppable force that comes after us day in and day out of our lives. And the big idea that we're going to look at this morning is no matter where you find yourself, the goodness of God is pursuing you right now, right? It's not just some abstract concept and it's not something for the future, but the goodness of God is pursuing you right now. And um, the truth is his pursuit of us is an invitation for us to experience him. And my prayer is that every single person that's walked into this room, or if you're watching online, you, you have the reality of the goodness of God passing before you and reminding you of who he is and who you are. The truth is his goodness is meant to overwhelm and to satisfy our souls. And there's something about the goodness of God that that provides a, a consistency and a constancy in our lives. It, 
It helps to orient us when nothing else makes sense because life itself can be disorienting. And so we're just going to kind of focus in on a very familiar passage, what might be considered the most famous passage in all the Bible. And it's not so that we can kind of be a master of Psalm 23, but it's so that we can experience the God of Psalm 23 in the ever-changing circumstances that we find ourselves in. So if you have your Bibles open and you are able, would you stand with me? And we just stand to draw attention to God's Word because His words are authoritative and His words are the standard for our doctrine and our practice. And we want Him to perform His words in us ultimately. Psalm 23, verse 1 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you may be seated. Father, I pray that we all would experience a fresh encounter with your leadership and your goodness and your guidance over our lives. I pray that you would bring real, meaningful ministry into our lives, um, that you would help us no matter where we are, if we feel stuck or if we feel alone or if we feel forgotten or if we are on the mountaintop, that we would still see there's more of your goodness. And I pray that your goodness would be the reality by which we understand our lives. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, The background of Psalm 23 is not immediately obvious. We don't know exactly when David wrote this. David spent a lot of his younger years being a shepherd, watching over sheep. So this would have been a familiar kind of imagery and language that David would use. But um, most commentators think that this is a reflection of a much older, wiser man. That, That David is looking over the totality of his entire life and he's trying to understand what is the kind of the overarching theme and the overarching emphasis. And I think you find that in verse 6 where it literally says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me or pursue me all of the days of my life. The defining reality for David, and I think the invitation for us, is to see our story in light of the goodness of God. Now, that may look different in different kinds of circumstances, and we may have to fight to see that and experience that in different seasons, but the overarching anthem when we are standing in glory is, He has been so good to me. And Psalm 23 is God's pledge to us that he will watch over us, that he will provide for us, and that he will protect us. And um, Psalm 23 is written to remind us of who our God is, his character, his nature, what it means for him to 
literally walk with us in a relationship and to lead us, but it also reminds us of who we are. Uh, We're the sheep in the metaphor, and there's some glorious, wonderful truth in that as well. So we're going to look at uh, three ways that God's goodness kind of shapes the narrative of our lives, and the first thing we're going to notice is that his goodness restores us. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul, and he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, the first thing to notice is that the goodness of God comes through relationship with the shepherd. Um, There is no more intimate language that David knew to kind of explain his relationship with God than the sheep and the shepherd. Um, He wants us to know from the outset that God is not just a shepherd out there. He's not just the shepherd, you know, kind of the shepherd of everything, but he's my shepherd, right? So we experience his goodness as we walk with him in relationship, right? And there's a huge difference, and I get into all kinds of trouble. Like if I'm following along and I'm following the good shepherd, you know, and I'm following him or I'm asking him to follow me, right? And there's a world of difference between those two kinds of things. But the important thing for us to understand is that his goodness is not transactional. And by that, I mean, it's not like when my wife Jen pops in to come and go three times a week to get (laughs) her diet Dr. Pepper with pellet ice because that's the only place in town that has it and plops down a dollar nine and she walks out with her come and go drink, right? God's goodness is is not a, a monetary transaction. But listen, functionally, we think that God's goodness is dependent on our goodness, right? That he's going to be good to us to the degree that we are good and faithful to him. But what we see throughout Psalm 23 is that his goodness chases us whether we have been faithful or we are unfaithful. His goodness is the the constant theme and the anthem of our lives. The New Testament refers to Jesus as our good shepherd. And a good shepherd knows his sheep. He knows them by name. Do you know that the shepherd knows you by name? He knows your frame. He knows your strengths. He knows your weaknesses. He knows when you are afraid. He's watching over you. The shepherd knows his sheep. He knows when one is sick. He knows when one is missing. And he goes after the ones who wander. Not only does the shepherd know the sheep, but the sheep know the shepherd and the New Testament say they recognize his voice. There's the difference between the voice of the good shepherd and a voice that brings fear and anxiety and worry and shame and condemnation. The voice of the shepherd is bringing us to life and the the voice of the shepherd is bringing us to a place of wholeness. And um, the, the reality is sheep are dependent and we actually need God to lead us. Sheep are never meant to be independent or autonomous. And most of the trouble that I find in my life is when I confuse my role and God's role. So Psalm 23 reveals God as um, he's the one that is my provider. He's the one that provides rest. He's the one that brings me into life. And when I try to secure those things on my own, I very quickly get into trouble. Now, 
David knew what it was like to be a shepherd, and um, maybe you would recognize this image. This is something that uh, popped up on the internet, but this, this is what I think it looks like to be a sheep, right? This is what it looks like for us to try to run our own lives. So we got a little video for you. So a little shepherd. There's Chad in the ditch right there. So God rescues us. All right, thank you very much, Jesus. I got it. Oops. Right? <laughs> I mean, there's more to being a sheep than that, but um, that, that sums up a lot of my discipleship right there, right? We, we think that we know how to run life best, but God is saying, listen, all of the things that you need, I can provide, but I want to provide them in an intimate relationship with you. Verse 1 says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And that means literally, I shall not lack any good thing. This means, very practically, God's not holding out on you, right? But most of us think that, like, God is kind of like, I don't know, some evil taskmaster, and he's holding out, kind of dangling a carrot to kind of get you to obey and to do all the things. But he's saying, listen, if you come to me, I'm going to give you every single thing that you need to live and thrive. And the truth is, he will always be better than we think. Verse 2 says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. And I want you to notice, like, Psalm 23 is all about the initiative of the goodness of God. Like, we're almost past his recipients in this passage. It says, he makes me lie down. He leads me. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He prepares a table in the presence of our enemies and anoints our heads with oil. He makes our cup overflow. His goodness pursues us all the days of our lives. So our lives are lived in this constant shadow of the goodness of the good shepherd. And listen, no matter whether you are in a season of suffering or a season of flourishing or you have been wandering, the invitation is to find fresh life and fresh joy in the presence of the shepherd. Now this is very practical because, I mean, it's easy to theoretically be aware of his provision and it's quite another to trust him for the provision of the things that bother us. And damage us the most. So I'll just bring you into a a situation in my own soul and my own life. So think back to 2020. I don't know where you were. The world shuts down. Um, I remember probably two weeks into the pandemic. I mean, this building, you know, was kind of like a a ghost house. and, And no one had been in here. And dust was starting to collect in the corners. And, um... You know, there was no promise that the government was going to bail people out. There was no promise of, of anything happening. And I just sat down in my office and at my desk. And, and in a real way, I said, God, I have to trust you for provision for your people. I wasn't necessarily concerned in that moment, which I have been in other times, about my own soul or my own provision. But I said, Lord, this church is in your hands. And very quickly, I remember he took me to a passage in 2 Kings chapter 4. And this was a promise that I held on to throughout the pandemic. And it basically was about Elisha and a widow. And she had um, some oil and she was about to run out. And basically, you know... um, Elisha the prophet tells her to go borrow a lot of different vessels and just to keep putting them out. And as long as she kept putting those out, the oil would never run out. And um, 
I took that to mean that um, as a church, we were going to pursue every avenue of help that we could. And so every time that I heard about a grant, I I assumed that one was for us. And I put out like another little uh, vessel to catch some oil. And I put one in over here. And then, you know, to look back two years later, I mean, the truth is, like, we're in better financial shape today than we were two years ago. And that's because of the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And that, that means that we endured seasons when there were like 12 people in this room, right? So God has been faithful, but his provision, you may be tempted to think that his oil runs out, you know, it may not be financially for you, but there's something in your life where you need to trust him for provision. And God's invitation to you today is to know that he wants to make you lie down in green pastures. He wants to provide for you. Philip Keller, in his book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, says this, Sheep do not lie down easily, and they will not unless four conditions are met. Because they are timid, they will not lie down if they are afraid. Because they are social animals, they will not lie down if there is friction among the sheep. If flies or parasites trouble them, they will not lie down. Finally, if sheep are anxious about food or hungry, they will not lie down. Rest comes because the shepherd has dealt with fear, he has dealt with friction, he has dealt with flies, and he has dealt with famine. So think about your life in light of that metaphor. God wants to cause you to lie down. He wants to deal with the source of your fear. He wants to deal with the source of your friction. He wants to deal with the source of the flies and all of the thoughts that seem to assail you. And he wants to make you lie down in green pastures. I love the second part of verse 2. It says, he leads me beside still waters. This literally means in Hebrew, he leads me to waters of rest. This is who our God is. He's not a harsh taskmaster. He is a shepherd that loves, provides for, and cares for his sheep. He's not like Pharaoh demanding more while providing less. He invites us to find rest with him and in him. Religion is a message that you must prove yourselves. You must earn favor from God. You must show that you are deserving. It's all about your performance. But the gospel is about coming and finding rest for your souls. Eugene Peterson puts it this way in his translation of the Bible called The Message in Matthew 11. It says this. It says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you will recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me and watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. And what I love about that invitation is it's okay to learn, right? Right? We all naturally want to put on the yoke of religion, that we have to prove how good we are or prove that we're deserving. Or we have, to certain degrees, everyone in the room can struggle with ideas of perfectionism. And, and Jesus says, basically, come to me and learn a whole new way of living, and I will give you rest. 
And over the last several years, the, the revelation that God's given me on rest, because there have been seasons in my life when it's been difficult to sleep, and rest at its most simple component equals trust, right? Rest means trust. We cannot have real rest without real trust. And trust comes from knowing and experiencing his goodness, right? So this psalm, in a lot of ways, is David's track record of God's faithfulness. And, and, and what he's inviting us into is to remember God's past faithfulness in our story and then call that to mind to bring hope for whatever we're walking through now, that his goodness never changes. I love how verse 3 says, he restores my soul. Right? The goodness of God makes us whole. And if I, if I could sum up the invitation of this entire series, I think it's in this. I think God wants to restore the soul and the heart of our church. Right? I, had this, I had this image this morning as I was praying that um, the opposite of, of being restored is fractured right? or broken. And I almost saw like a, a whole group of people um, that walk around aware of their brokenness. And there, there's a way to acknowledge brokenness and that that's the effect of either our own personal sin or someone's sin against us that's right and good and true. Um, but we can worship that, right? And we can make that our identity to the expense of um, a God who wants to restore our soul. So I basically saw a group of individuals that had a sweatshirt on and across it it said broken. And then I, I, I literally saw God say, I'm going to change the way that people see themselves and I'm going to move them from brokenness to, to I'm the one that restored. And there's going to be that word restored over their life. And, and I think God wants you to... Come to him in such a way that you bring all of the things that you think define your life. Um, because listen, he doesn't see you as broken, right? You're the only one that sees you as broken. He sees you in Jesus. He sees you complete. Um, theologically speaking, God is outside of time. Like he's not living uh, in 2022 right now. He's looking both um, at where we are right now and he's looking at the finish line and he's got his eyes locked on the glorified state of what he's going to finish, right? And we're supposed to have kind of a, a, a picture of that as we go forward that that's what God wants to do for us. He wants to restore our souls. And... I had another impression, and I'm, I'm just going to share it. And I think that there, it may be one person, it may be a number of people in the room um, that are struggling with suicidal thoughts. And the thoughts that you continue to have are, um, there's no one on the planet that cares about me. Um, I could die tomorrow and no one would care. And I believe in the midst of Psalm 23, God is making an appeal. You matter. I want to bring you home. I want to make you whole. And if you are here this morning and that's you, this is an invitation from the goodness of God to experience his wholeness. He wants to take the shattered pieces of your story and he wants to bring you life. He is a good shepherd. Brings me to my next point. His goodness protects us. His goodness protects us. Verses four and five 
probably are among the most important verses in the whole Bible to help you understand your story, God's goodness, and the reality of a a broken and a fallen world and what it looks like to follow him in the midst of all of that. Verses 4 and 5 say, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. The valley of the shadow of death literally means the valley of deepest darkness. Right? Um, and the truth is, that's not a theoretical, poetic construction. I mean, we all live in a world with miscarriages and cancer and the loss of loved ones and depression. And the truth is, it's not a matter of if you will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It is when you will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And the promise here is not that we won't go through difficult things, that you will never go through those difficult things alone, that his presence is there to protect you, that his presence is there to guide you, and his presence is there to bring you life along the way. I remember listening to, I mean, I don't even know if Jen and I were married at the time, but we were in a conference with John Piper, and we were sitting down front with our John Piper lunchbox, and he said this, he said, he said he was talking about um, just the reality of what it looks like to, to live life in the fallen world. And he gave this poem, and it's always stuck with me. He says, it's not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this. The grace that orders our trouble and pain, and then in the darkness, is there to sustain. That is Psalm 23, verses 4 and 5 in a nutshell. That the presence of the good shepherd is there to sustain us in the midst of the darkness. The goodness of his presence makes all the difference. The New Testament says it this way. And this is the reason that we can trust him when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. John 10, when it's speaking about Jesus, says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The reason that he can be trusted is because he has walked through the valley of the shadow of death on our behalf, right? And he didn't sidestep the cross. He actually endured it till the end so that we know that when we go through the, dark, the deep darkness of the valley of the shadow of death, that he will be with us, that he holds us with his righteous right hand. Now, Corey Tinboom, I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she basically was a teenager that grew up in Nazi co- concentration camps. And she had a profound faith and she had a profound way of ministering to people that were suffering. And she says this when things get dark. She says, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. Right, So all of us know what it's like to be disoriented by the evil and the darkness that exists in the world and the loss that we experience. In those moments, it is paramount that we sit still and we trust the engineer. So God's goodness sustains us as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Verse 5 says this, it says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Now, um, 
Now, I've never been actually in a battle, but that's, that's kind of the scene here. David is in the midst of a battlefield, and God prepares a feast for him. But I have been in the Navy, and um, it got pretty serious at certain points in time. And um, we, we did some humanitarian efforts along the way. And um, at the conclusion of those kinds of operations, basically they would fly in steak and lobster. I didn't know if you knew the U.S. Navy did that, but I mean, that's kind of a bonus. Like when you do something like really good, they'll reward you like that. Um, and that's kind of the imagery that comes to mind. Um, but not only does that happen, like, I mean, that happened for us kind of like after everything was over. God prepares that table in the presence of my enemies. Like while we are actually going through the thing. And so if you are in the midst of experiencing the deep darkness or you're surrounded by enemies right now, the, the truth is there's a feast on the way. Now, there is a very personal element to this psalm. Like, I mean, you hear David talking about he, God being his shepherd. And I've always pictured the table as just kind of me and God, you know, in the midst of a battlefield. And I don't think this would be a stretch, but most of the time if there's a feast, like there's other people there, Right? right? But we're so individualistic. We're just like, it's just me and Jesus, right? We're, we, we got this thing. But the truth is, David oftentimes said um, that his delight was in the glorious ones, like the saints that were all around him. Those are the ones that brought him strength. Those are the ones that brought him joy. So I don't think it would be a stretch to make the application the feast that God has in the midst of the battle oftentimes is going to be in the people that are around you. Right? The times that I become most aware of God's presence is not always when I'm on my own or I'm on my knees and I'm looking at my Bible. It's when I'm surrounded by friends and they're reminding me the truth of who God is. So the feast oftentimes is in the presence of God, but it's the presence of other people that brings us strength. Finally, the goodness of God pursues us all the days of our life. Look at verse 6. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is one of the most encouraging verses in all the Bible. It says that his goodness and his mercy, this is his hesed or his covenant love, chases after us, literally pursues us all the days of our lives. This is David's confidence. It's meant to be our confidence. And I, I love it because this is an invitation for wanderers to come home, right? Um, David knew what it was like to dwell in the temple with the presence of God and to lead the people of God into procession and into worship. But he also knew what it was like to get off the path. He also knew what it was like to wander. And he also knew that the, the goodness of God never stopped. And if I had any message for anyone in this room today, it's that you can never outrun or out the goodness of God. Right? As long as you have breath in your lungs, the goodness of God is an invitation to come home and to find life and to find refuge in him. We very intentionally sang a song this morning called Come Thou Fount. And the hymn writer writes this. He says, O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to thee. It says, let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And one line I want to draw your attention to. It says, let thy goodness, like a fetter, 
bind my wandering heart to thee. Right? So if you're here and you are aware of your propensity to wander, basically, I don't know if you have a fetter lying around your house. Um, you know, I'm not using that language every day, but a fetter is basically a chain, and it's literally a prisoner's chain. And what the hymn writer is writing is, I want you to chain my heart and my life to your goodness in such a way that I never run away from you. Like, I want you to tie me to you in such a way that I'll never forget or I'll never escape your goodness. Or, in other words, God save me from me. Right? Um, I can talk about all of the evils that exist and all of the temptations that exist in the world, but the greatest problem is my own heart and my own ability to wander. But what Psalm 23 verse 6 says is that His goodness and His mercy continue to run after us all the days of our lives. And I'll close with this story. This is what it looked like for me. So, probably by the time I was 14 years old, I stopped going to church altogether. I found convenient ways to avoid the people of God. Um, I got a job. I stayed out late. I would sleep over with friends. Um, And it was probably, this was probably near the time I had joined the Navy. So I was probably 17, 18 years old. And it was Mother's Day. And my mother asked me to go to her small charismatic Pentecostal church. And so if you don't know what that means, I'm going to bring you into that a little bit. that means the, the sermon's optional, but everybody getting prayed for and laid hands on is not optional, right? Uh, so, yeah, you guys certainly haven't been there. All right. <laughs> We're not going to do that today. All right, so I was in this small charismatic Pentecostal church, and um, I could almost feel my heart beginning to beat faster. And I tried with everything I was not to make eye contact with the pastor because I knew that pastor was coming for me and I knew he was going to, you know, he was going to lay hands and he was expecting something crazy to come out of me. And um, that whole time, I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to avoid. And then, you know, sure enough, he comes around to me. My mom's sitting there. It's Mother's Day. I want to be a good, obedient son. And he says, can I pray for you? And I'm like, yeah, sure, you can pray for me. And so I stand up, and yeah, he does the, I mean, he didn't try to push me over or anything, but I was ready for that. And um, (laughs) he laid his hands on me, and he was praying for me. And while he was doing that, he was praying some prayer. I have no idea what he's praying. But I began to pray my own prayer. And this probably isn't going the way that you think it was going. I, this, this was the prayer that I literally prayed to God. God, I know you're real. And I do not want you. I want to run my own life. I might follow you one day after I've had some fun. But listen, right now I'm going to live for me. Right? And I'm so thankful that God did not answer that prayer. Like, all right? So fast forward two or three years down the line. I find myself in another church First time I had been to church, four or five years. Here I am, the pastor's talking about the mercy and the goodness of God. And something in those moments broke me. And I remember praying. And I, and I came down front because they had like an altar and I was doing the whole thing. And I said, listen, I, God, I do want you. Right? If you still want me, I want you. And In that moment, his goodness came and his goodness restored and his goodness brought me life. And we all, 
have seasons where we wander, but Psalm 23 is about wanderers coming home. And I really do think God wants to invite people to come to the table and come to find life. No matter how far off you have wandered, his goodness is chasing you all the days of our lives. And then not only does his goodness um, chase us all the days of our lives, but his goodness brings us home. It says at the end of verse 6, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. His goodness will be the anthem and the song over our life, not only in this life, but in the life to come. So I want to just pray, and I'll invite the band to come up, and we will enjoy his goodness together. Father, I pray right now that you would bring real goodness to bear on our stories and our lives. I pray for any that are wandering, and if you are wandering and you want to come home, you can pray something like this. God, I don't know everything about you, but what I do know, I I want to know and experience. I want to know what it's like to experience your goodness and your mercy because of Jesus. Teach me to walk in paths of life for your sake. God, I pray for those that are finding their identity and, and the fractured parts of their soul and their story more than they're finding it in your restoration power. I pray that you would wipe away the identity of brokenness and that you would bring just a real message of restoration and hope. I pray that we would all know the joy of being shepherded by you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.